This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between. And we love to hear your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org, and we'll put them up on the air. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And now we bring you the incredible life story of Kelly Loth, a Colorado woman who left her job as a biochemical engineer to try to find greater meaning as a teacher. Kelly would find meeting and has had extraordinary impact. But as is often the case, many great things begin with a tragedy. We had just had our first child. When I got the call, I was not at home. I was actually at school at parent-teacher conferences running them. I was a teacher then. And I actually thought that it was my son, that something had happened, you know, that he was really sick or something had happened. I didn't even think that it could be my husband. He had a massive stroke. When I got to the hospital and realized what was going on, I knew that my life would never be the same. And, and it wasn't. He was actually uh, pronounced dead twice. <laughs> kind of thought through it a little bit that first night. I walked into the hospital and I'm 24 years old and I don't know what's going on and I'm asked to make a decision to give him the medicine that helps kind of recover brain activity and, and lessen some of the swelling in the brain and it would either help him or it would instantly kill him. And at that point I had no, no family around, just had literally been dropped off at the hospital and from that decision forward everything was different. So he spent two weeks in the ICU and then another several weeks in the hospital and had to be transitioned to a facility to learn to walk and talk again and become a, a human being again, to be honest, brush his teeth, the whole thing. And it was very traumatic to his brain. He kind of topped up maturity-wise at about an 18-year-old, and here's a man who helped design QuickBooks. I mean, like, a genius. It was all around heartbreaking. There were several times he would tell me he wished he had died, that he hadn't survived. Over the course of several months we just tried to figure out how to go forward with a brand new baby being a very young brand new teacher and then having this happen i missed seeing trey's first steps because my parents had taken him to live with them so that i could be with um, my husband full-time and help him recover and it was just a lot it was a lot of being a 24 year old i look back on it now and i think thank god i was and that sort of had this like weird ignorance about me of like work through it get through it just take each day I used to walk out of the hospital and go stand by the highway on Highway 36 and just watch traffic and just wish that I was in a car going to like a really boring normal job, like that, that was my day and that I wasn't there at the hospital trying to figure out how to re-navigate my whole life. He came home and wasn't only, not only the same person, but didn't like the same food, didn't dress the same. I think didn't even really want to be with me. Certainly didn't want to have a child. We started to see that I'm not sure where we go from here. My husband and I talked through it and it was actually mutually agreed upon to not stay together so that he could concentrate on becoming better and really get the rehab that he needed in a way that wasn't distracting and that I could move on with my life and with our son. And so I guess I'm proud to say that we're good friends. He sees our son as he can and as he wants to and cheers him on at his games. We all are together, we go do things together, so it's kind of one big, happy, dysfunctional family. <laughs> he 
you always search for why. Like, why do these things happen? Like, and I know there's a medical reason. I mean, I'm an engineer. I'm a scientist. I fully understood when the doctors were telling me what was happening. But I think for me, there's always just been this bigger sense of why did this happen and what was the journey that this led us to. And so it's always made me have a greater sense of, like, do something impactful, make a difference, because you just never know. Like, our lives were great. I mean, I would say they're perfect. But it definitely creates a, a sense of there's got to be something that you do that's important. And Kelly went on to impact education in important ways, all starting with her first job as a teacher in a Denver suburb of Adams County. It was mid-year, and so when you get a job teaching mid-year in a district, they go around and piece together a class for you, and you can imagine being the other teachers, you don't give up your best and brightest students. So I took on a class of about 22 students who had all been sort of dumped into my classroom. Most could not read. It was a first, second grade combination class, and my classroom was physically on the stage, so it wasn't an actual classroom. And I had no idea what I was doing. Here I come out of the engineering world, I'm looking at them all like, what do you mean you can't read? Like, come on, let's go. And so we did eventually teach them to read and do some amazing math, but everything I did and taught them was through the lens of science. Went around the school asking for like, do you guys have any cool science equipment? Finally, one teacher said to me, oh, I think there's a closet full of some junk that we stuffed in the back. You're welcome to go at it. And I went in there and there was just all these amazing kits and junk literally in there. And so I pulled it all out and I looked at what I was supposed to be teaching to first and second graders. And I just started building units around it. And then we did all of our reading, writing, and math through that lens. I don't think it was a super popular idea at the time. It was a kind of a model then of follow the curriculum, do what you're told, read out the book, don't steer away from that really. I did tell you a funny story. So the first week I was there, I sat in the teacher's lounge, right, which is like the sacred ground. And I sat down at a table in just a very much a very ugly folding chair. It was a really disgusting lounge. And two women walked in and said, you're, you're in our seats. And I thought, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't realize there was like seating in the lounge. And they said, yeah, this is where we sit every day and have lunch. And so I, I got up and I moved and I apologized. And I remember thinking, oh my goodness, what have I gotten myself into? It was just so interesting. I had teacher after teacher stop by. One day, our kids put on a play. My kids put on a play to explain a science phenomenon that we were working on. We were talking about matter, the very first and second grade level. So I was like, let's write a play for it. And you guys put on a play, we'll invite your parents in. And I had people coming over like, we don't do that. I don't know what you're doing. What, you know, you're, you're wasting time. And I think they didn't want to be forced to do what I was doing. Do you know what I mean? Like, I didn't, they didn't want someone else to see this engagement and say, oh, why, why are we not doing some of this? Like, you all do this, you know, because it's required a lot of effort and something different. And I think they were a little fearful of me, to be honest, and didn't know what to do. And to be honest, I didn't care. Do you know what I mean? Like, it, I didn't want to lose my job, but at the same time, I thought, you aren't showing me a different way that's getting you better results. So I have kids engaged. I have kids who can't come to school for lots of reasons, coming to school because what we're doing is important to them. And for me, that was a win at the time. And you're listening to Kelly Loth, the CEO of MindSpark Learning, founder of the first K-8 STEM school in the country. And when we continue, more of Kelly Loth's remarkable story. This is Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we're back with the story of Kelly Loth, the Colorado engineer who changed careers to become a teacher. New to the profession, Kelly created some innovative teaching methods that were unwelcomed by her coworkers, but showed great success. Let's get back to Joey with the rest of the story. After feeling like the black sheep, digging through the school closets for science kits, and creating plays about science, Kelly went on to become the science coordinator in her school district. We started to see that science like wasn't important. It was all focused on math and literacy. You know, teachers weren't engaged, students weren't engaged. And so Kelly thought, what if we created a school where students could actually be engaged? Where the classroom could look like the real world? Where businesses could share with students their actual problems that they themselves haven't even figured out yet? A school where students go on problem-solving adventures to learn pretty much everything, like literacy and STEM, subjects of science, technology, engineering, and math. A school where students are given the tools to create their own futures through a philosophy of teaching called problem-based learning. We started asking schools that were identifying with STEM at the time because it had just become like that new thing that was getting a lot of traction at the federal level. If we were to build a STEM school, how would you tell us to do that? And they were saying, you have to start young. They said, we want to be relevant to workforce, but we're remeeting so much at this level, there's no pipeline for us. Like kids are coming to us not ready to do all the things that we want them to do. And we were like, awesome. So we went back and we built out an entire school model of a K-8 STEM school and how we would start teaching career literacy and this identity of work very, very early at five years old. We had a superintendent at the time that we pitched the idea to, and he said, absolutely not. We don't have schools of choice around here. Don't need them, not interested, don't have the resources. Like, not happening. I mean, it was completely shut down. Perfect storm happened. A new superintendent came in. I think he was literally on the job two weeks, and we literally pounced on him and said, we have this idea. Just want to run it by you. Like, we were shut down before, not sure if you're going to like it. At that time, too, was also a perfect storm where a ton of charter schools were trying to move into the district, and it's not a a charter-friendly district at the time. And so his philosophy was competition, while it's healthy, we shouldn't need the charter schools. We should be able to serve our kids as well. And if we're not, then why are we not doing that? And so he said, I like it. I like the idea that it's our kids, we're serving our kids well, and we're giving some choice, and we're giving some competition to the market, but we're doing it ourselves. It was in a time when the district was cutting $22 million out of the budget, and he found the courage and took the risk to say yes to us. So we got put in the crappiest building in the district. It was actually condemned. Kind of cobbled a budget together from a whole bunch of different pots of money in the district and said, basically, you've got three months to open the doors, be successful, or we'll close you down, but good luck. (laughs) And so the three of us took it on head on. We set out a brain trust invite for industry to come to the table so that we could build a model relevant to them and really get their ideas and see what they were working on that was authentic that we could bring into the classroom. And we put out a call for about 400, 500 people and five people showed up. And we asked them for all these brilliant ideas about what problems are you working on? If you were to intersect with education, what would you want that to look like? And it was brilliant. I mean, it truly was brilliant. And they they really did build the model out for us and with us. And at the end of that time, they were like, great, when can we get our hands on these kids? Because they're just going to be amazing, right? Like, we want this talent pipeline. And I said, they're gonna, we're going to start with five-year-olds. He, they said, you want to start with five-year-olds? And I, we said, yes, we're, we're going to start with five-year-olds. And they were just sort of, I think, appalled. But they didn't leave us. And still, so now it's 10 years later, the schools that we've built this model in are thriving. And we have over 460 industry partnerships that work in the school every day. 
and they don't give up their money, but they give up their time and resource and expertise, and they, they build out the model. A model for the very first K-8 STEM school in America. Our first school was wildly successful. We opened the door with 250 kids. By the end of that year, we had 483 families on a wait list to get in, and we had closed the reading gap for our Hispanic males by mid-year. So we kind of got excited and thought maybe there's something kind of to this madness that we were creating and working on. Students wrestle over these problems in collaborative teams, as young as five, and then they present their viable solutions and ideas to a panel of industry experts who've kind of worked along the way with them and end up going in two different directions usually, which is if it's a viable product or service, the students launch their own companies, and then or they do something significant in the community. So we've had several students start nonprofits. One of the first years, we um, had some second graders who were working on the problem around the pine beetle kill going on in Colorado. Several years ago, um, we had an infestation of uh, beetles that were actually traveling tree to tree in our pine forest and just killing them. So, and in wiping out literally massive acres of trees. And some scientists think it's part of kind of a natural cycle that happens and others, it's definitely devastating and leading to a lot of the wildfires then because you have all this dead wood. So it's part of a whole bigger kind of ecological problem. But we had a group of second graders who'd come up with these really simple but pretty brilliant ideas around how to combat the pine beetle from spreading and actually had some really cool and powerful ideas about killing off the larvae before it was able to even become a full adult pine beetle and spread. And it was very simple. I mean, it was like something you'd know that a second grader would develop. And we as educators and working with these students, you know, we didn't know much about it. We just knew what the experts had said. And so I remember telling the students like, yeah, I think, I think you should definitely pitch this idea. And I remember the teacher and I had been talking like, wow, that's such a simple idea. Hopefully the industry experts will like it. Like, not sure it's well developed. And the kids pitched and it was kind of two groups that had very similar ideas. And actually the companies came back, the industry panel came back four times to talk with students about this idea and became apparent very soon that they wanted their idea. They were gonna market it, that they actually thought there was some merit to it. And so we quickly developed a process for some of the companies we worked with to sign NDAs so that they, and to sign some IP rights so that they wouldn't go around stealing student ideas, but actually mentor and help students to develop their ideas. And students got patents out of that project. You're in second grade and you have a brilliant idea and have a patent. So the companies actually ran with their idea, but the students uh, actually kind of quote unquote sold it to them. So, <laughs> I mean, just crazy, right? It's just so cool. And these aren't her only students with real business stuff going on. Now we're up to six student-run LLCs, fully registered, the youngest in second grade. And then we have about 16 student patents pending in our pipeline. It's always funny, everyone always says, well, what do you do to get prepared for all the state testing and all the high-stakes testing? And I say, we don't do anything. We don't celebrate the tests. We don't have pajama day for the test. We don't dye our hair, wear crazy socks. It's another day and actually most of my STEM students are so relieved to just be like not presenting and not doing something major that day. They're like, it's testing day. Yeah, you know, and they'll actually tell you, it's kind of boring, take a test, but it's not a big deal to them. And they don't have test anxiety because they're doing this every day. They're working on all these things that matter to them in their community. And so they're applying all these skills at such a high rate in such an authentic way. They're vetting multiple texts. They're having to find the important information out of that text. They're doing these skills all the time this is just a different housing mechanism. They also every day get up and say to a group of adults, I want you to care about the idea that I have. And they have to look you in the eye, they have to shake your hand, they have to express themselves. And so 
sit in front of a computer screen and take a test does not seem like a big deal to them anymore. And Kelly's work wasn't over. She was asked to bring her STEM problem-based learning model to a struggling high school in her district. So they've gone from a 69% grad rate to having around 90% grad rate. And the really amazing thing is they're underrepresented populations, their um, Hispanic students and their African-American students are out graduating their white counterpart students. Which is practically unheard of in America. I think what's happening is that it's no longer just about surviving high school and not feeling connected to your school. The students are very empowered there. And so what we've seen is students who come from pretty impacted families and are very at risk thrive because school has a purpose to that, right? It's a means to a family-sustaining wage. And they know that they're just not sitting through a class because they have to sit through a class, but they know that they have to come and they're working side by side with somebody from industry. They have to show up for that mentorship. It's gonna translate into this job or it's gonna translate into a two-year degree or eventually onto college if they wish. Like, there's just such a powerful meaning there that we've seen attendance rates go up. And we've seen discipline rates go down. And they went from, you know, having nobody wanting to be in the school to a wait list. Like, kids have internships and jobs. It's just completely changed the community. And great job to Joey, and we're telling Kelly Loth's story, a remarkable story. And I love that line, school has a purpose. What a crazy idea. Because, well, when what we're studying is tied to our purpose, well, then math, the sciences, it all becomes interesting. Well, because there's a connection between what they're studying and what they want to do with their lives. It's an applied learning situation. You know, my dad spent a lifetime in public education trying to get this done. It was great frustration. He couldn't. He was a superintendent of schools. But very strong teachers' unions didn't really care for innovation in the state of New Jersey. And Kelly has launched two more STEM schools in her district and has 13 sister schools across the country. Kelly now runs a nonprofit called MindSpark Learning, which helps bring these same transformative experiences into struggling schools across the country. And if your school needs help, you can reach out to Kelly at mymindsparklearning.org. That's mymindsparklearning.org. Kelly Loth's story, and a great innovation and education story, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, as you well know, including lots of stories about history. And all of our history stories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. If you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses, their Constitution 101 course, the best storytelling about a founding document the Constitution that I've ever seen. Go to hillsdale.edu to find it. That's hillsdale.edu. Our next story comes to us from a man who's simply known as the History Guy. His videos are watched by hundreds of thousands of people of all ages on YouTube, and he's been telling stories regularly here on Our American Stories. Here's the History Guy with the tale 
of an escaped slave turned legend named Robert Smalls. Robert Smalls was born into slavery in 1839 in Beaufort, South Carolina. His mother was a slave and his father's not known, although it may well have been his owner, Henry McKee. As a youth, McKee rented Robert out as a laborer, with McKee receiving the pay. Robert was fond of the sea and so started taking work at the Charleston docks, first as a stevedore unloading ships and working the docks, and then on boats as a sailor or sailmaker or fisherman. Eventually he came to know the waters of the Carolina coast well and was a skilled boat pilot, even though slaves were not given that title. In 1856, Robert married another slave, a hotel maid named Hannah Jones. The couple was trusted enough to live apart from their owners, although the owners still took most of their pay. They had a daughter, and then a son, who died at the age of two. The Civil War started just out front his door, at Fort Sumter in Charleston Harbor. The Confederacy recognized Robert's skill and pressed him into service as the wheelman aboard the CSS Planter, a sidewheel steamer that had been converted into an armed dispatch boat. The planter delivered dispatches, troops, and supplies, as well as laid mines, then called torpedoes, to protect the harbor. Robert was a trusted member of the crew, and his piloting skills were valuable, given his knowledge and experience with the coast. But Robert, like almost any person who is being treated as property, wanted freedom. This was particularly important to him, as Hannah's owner was abusive, and he feared she might be sold away. He wished to buy her freedom, but did not have enough money. They had to escape, and in May 1862, he saw his chance. Smalls had noticed that the Confederate officers made a habit of leaving the ship at night, so he and the other eight slaves aboard hatched a plan. On May 12, 1862, the planter was docked in Charleston, carrying a load of four cannon that were intended to add to the city's defense. When, in the evening, the officers left the ship, Smalls and the crew took the boat met that their families at a prearranged spot in the harbor and fled to the Union blockade. This was no simple feat. Had they been caught, they would all certainly have been executed. The harbor was well defended, with five Confederate harbor forts, each capable of destroying the boat. But Smalls knew all the proper signals and even impersonated the captain standing at the front of the boat. Once free of the harbor, they lowered the Confederate flag and put up a white sheet, hoping the ships of the Union blockade would see it. Yet they were still nearly fired upon by the Federal blockade fleet, as the captain of the armed clipper USS Onward, seeing the Confederate gunboat, ordered the guns to ready. But a crewman with binoculars saw Smalls and his compatriots waving frantically from the deck. Once the captain of the Onward boarded the planter, Smalls reportedly asked if they had a Union flag for the ship to fly. Incredibly, Smalls' audacious plan allowed him to not only steal a Confederate warship from a well-defended port and deliver it as a prize to the Union, but also to deliver nine families from slavery. Smalls became a hero in the Union, but the Confederacy put a $4,000 bounty on his head. His knowledge of the Charleston defenses was invaluable, and he immediately went into the service of the Union Navy, acting as the pilot aboard a number of vessels, including aboard the now USS Planter. Having laid mines for the Confederacy, he now helped to remove them. An 1883 naval report noted that he participated in 17 Civil War battles and engagements, including serving as pilot of the ironclad USS Keokuk during the disastrous attack on Charleston, April 7th of 1863, where the ship was savaged by Fort Sumter's guns. 
the heavily damaged ship was able to withdraw under her own power, due in large part to Small's considerable piloting skills. In December of 1863, he was back aboard USS Planter when the steamer got caught in a crossfire between Union and Confederate troops near Folly Island. The captain of the boat, James Nickerson, panicked and ordered the boat to surrender. But Smalls refused, knowing that he and the other black sailors would face execution if they were captured. He took command and was able to navigate the boat outside the Confederate guns. For his heroism, he was made captain of the Planter, the first black man to command a United States ship. During the war, he engaged in other heroics as well. He was instrumental in convincing Abraham Lincoln and Secretary of War Edwin Stanton to allow the recruitment of black troops into the Union Army, now to recruit former slaves for the 1st Volunteer South Carolina Regiment, one of the first black regiments. He supported efforts to raise money to educate former slaves and himself achieved literacy. He was voted an unofficial delegate to the Republican National Convention in 1864. Also that year, when he was forced to give up his seat to a white passenger on a Philadelphia streetcar, he left the car rather than sit in the open overflow platform. That small act of rebellion helped to motivate the state of Pennsylvania to integrate public transportation in 1867. Following the war, Smalls was a delegate to the 1868 South Carolina Constitutional Convention. He was elected to the State House of Representatives and then to the State Senate, and in 1874, was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives. But this was a brutal era in U.S. politics, where anti-Reconstructionists frequently used violence and intimidation, often through shadow organizations of the Democrats, such as the Ku Klux Klan and the South Carolina Red Shirts. Thirty-five African-American officials were murdered by such organizations during the period of Reconstruction. Small's life was threatened by a group of armed Red Shirts at a political rally in 1876. Over his long political career, he had endured threats of violence, false and trumped-up charges, and open intimidation of voters. The young man who escaped slavery by audaciously stealing a warship never faltered in the face of adversity. Escaping because he could not afford to purchase his wife's freedom, after the war he used some of the money awarded by the Union as a prize for the capture of the CSS planter to purchase his former owner's home. The young hero who played a pivotal role in incorporating black soldiers into the Federal Army was eventually a major general in the South Carolina militia. In 2004, when the U.S. Army named a massive Besson-class logistic support vessel, the USAV Major General Robert Smalls became the first U.S. Army vessel to be named after an African American. Through it all, he faced terrible threats and discrimination. In the end, he even had to fight for his pension Despite being the first black captain of a United States ship, he had never actually officially been commissioned. Because of the color of his skin, he had technically served throughout the war, including 17 engagements, as a civilian. Robert Smalls died of diabetes in 1915 at the age of 75. The inscription on his monument is a quotation from a statement he made to the South Carolina legislature in 1895. My race needs no special defense. For the past history of them in this country proves them to be the equal of any people, anywhere. All they need is an equal chance in the battle of life. And a special thanks to the History Guy if you'd like to subscribe to his YouTube channel, and I urge you to do it. It's the History Guy. History deserves to be remembered, and thanks to Greg Hengler for the production on the piece. And my goodness, what final words. My race needs no special defense. For the past history of them 
in this country proves them to be the equal of any people anywhere. All they need is an equal chance in the battle of life. And we tell a lot of stories here on this show, and particularly the iniquities perpetuated by this country on African Americans. Uh, it's storytelling that needs to be remembered and told, and we do it here because we tell all the stories of this country, some good and not so good, and Robert Small's ability to triumph despite these difficulties. My goodness, if any one of us could walk in his shoes and do the same. Robert Small's story, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love to talk about movies on this show. And in this next story, you're about to hear from two guys who loved a movie so much when they were kids that they recreated the movie in their own backyard and on an epic level. Here's Jesse with a story. It all started in 1981 with Steven Spielberg's Raiders of the Lost Ark, the first of the Indiana Jones series starring Harrison Ford. It was that year's top-grossing film and one of the biggest box office earners of all time with upwards of $390 million in sales. But for whatever reason, the very following year, small town of Ocean Springs, Mississippi, 11-year-old Chris Stromopoulos and 12-year-old Eric Zala set out to recreate Raiders of the Lost Ark on video, scene for scene, every shot, every line of dialogue, the entire film using the original screenplay and score by John Williams. These kids are nuts. Not only did they pull it off, they pretty much nailed it. Shooting for this epic fan film began in 1982 and continued over the next seven summers on a shoestring budget of $5,000. It's quite possibly one of the best fan films ever made. They have screenings for this thing all over the world, and everybody in Hollywood knows about it. Now, the idea to remake the film scene by scene was hatched by then 11-year-old Chris Dramopoulos, but it was 12-year-old Eric Zala who had all of the experience. Yeah, I did a class film in sixth grade, which Chris saw. We rode on the bus to elementary school together, and he, as a result, mistakenly thought I knew something about film. So when he got this wacky idea to remake Raiders Lost Ark shot for shot, um, that and the fact that I borrowed his Raiders Lost Ark comic book on the bus is what led him to give me a call and say, hey, I'm remaking Raiders Lost Ark, do you want to help? And I thought all the sets were built, everyone was cast, I'd just sort of walk on and help. Little did I know, the only thing that Chris had done at that point was buy the published screenplay and, as any good producer will do, cast himself as Indiana Jones. So where did Chris get the idea to remake what was then a major blockbuster release in the early 80s? He says it was all just about kids having fun. The whole sort of originating idea was really born out of more of a role-playing thing. It was a, it was a fantasy. It was, yeah, a creative project ensued and, and, a, and a lifelong collaboration ensued. But I don't think it was ever like... 
I don't ever think it entered our minds, you know, uh, like we sat down and, and thought, okay, well, we're about to put a, a whole, you know, the next seven years of our lives into a creative project. What else do you want to work on? You know, what other, what other things that, it's like, this is what we're doing, and we're kind of going for it, and... And we had no long, uh, no idea how long it was going to take us, mm. so we sort of dove in and did it. So I don't, I don't know if we had that spectrum of creative thinking yet. I think it was just like, hey, this is it. This is what we're doing. Mm. Wouldn't it be exciting if? And we just sort of went after it with that childlike energy. How did these kids in Southern Mississippi back in the early '80s pull it off? Eric explains that it wasn't really easy. As a uh, 11 and 12 year old, respectively, growing up in Mississippi in the uh, 80s, pre-internet, you know, how do you remake a 26 million dollar movie on your allowance? You know, we knew nothing about it, and and for the first year, so we kind of, figuratively speaking, groped around in the darkness as far as figuring out how you do that. You know, I wrote a 600-page shot list, and then it got to the end and realized it was utterly worthless. You know, close-up, and he walks into room. I mean, what are you going to do with that? And, and then figured out, okay, no, storyboards. That's how the professionals do it. Yeah, yeah, and it was sort of by osmosis, uh, filmmaking on the fly. Now, filmmaking on the fly can sometimes get a little dangerous, especially when kids are in charge. One day, there was a fire on the set. Most of the interiors we shot in my mom's basement, which had this big rambling basement, multiple rooms. So uh, we would, we'd only shoot in the summertime. Um, you know, it was like summer camp. You know, we'd, we'd do production, pre-production during the school year, but during the summer that was our time. So uh, think 120% humidity, typical Mississippi summer day. Um, we'll start early and, um, and uh, saunter down to the basement where... You know, it's made up like a Nepalese saloon with my dad's old wine bottles lining the uh, lining the uh, the shelves, and, and Jason, our cameraman, is wiring up squibs to go off in the wall. Um, and uh, we have, uh, you know, the the Nepalese saloon nearly burns down, and um, our moms had shut us down the previous summer because, well, they spotted a shot with me with my back on fire, and for some reason I had a problem with this. Um, so. But they allowed us to continue with uh, two words, adult chaperone. We found an adult even less responsible than we were. And so um, he helped us uh, guide us to when, you know, there wasn't a fire in certain edges of the frame, you know, more, more gasoline over there. It's a wonder we didn't burn the house down. Don't try this at home, kids. When making a film, be it in Hollywood or Mississippi, there are several stages of production. There's pre-production, shooting, and post-production. Here again is Eric on the pre-production efforts to build this monumental tribute film. First summer was entirely nothing but pre-production, drawing storyboards, scouting locations, casting, costumes, props. Year two, we finally shot, kept none of it because, again, we didn't know anything about filmmaking. Um, so there's very few shots that, that we actually kept from that first year, but there are certain scenes that we just would shoot over and over and over again. Through uh, trial and error, we slowly picked up things about uh, learning about composition, lighting, blocking, acting, and bit by bit we got better. And only when we were satisfied with uh, the quality of a shot and of a scene would we move on to the next. Now these kids are obviously determined to get the film made, but there was another major hurdle that they would have to overcome back in the early 80s. And that was just simply having access to the film that they were trying to recreate. We only actually saw the movie a few times, you know, uh, uh, and worked pretty much from memory for the first handful of years until the film actually came out on Laserdisc in 84. 
And so we cobbled together absolutely everything that we could in terms of, you know, Raiders paraphernalia, you know, um, storybooks and magazines and, and bubblegum cards and, and all that stuff, the comic book and the screenplay, and, and to the best of our memory, sat down and, and Eric you know, chiseled out well over 600 individual storyboards that we then used as a blueprint. But we, you know, we went back to the theater as much as that we could. But, um, you know, for those of us who kind of remember the 80s, there were, there, video stores were really in their infancy, that you couldn't really go down and rent whatever you wanted, you know. Um, there was an availability issue, you know, and, and it was in a movie when they kind of re-released things. So when the movie was re-released in the theater, we went back and watched it, you know, again, as much as our, you know, allowance would allow. So the boys ended up finishing their scene-by-scene remake of Raiders of the Lost Ark with their big premiere at an auditorium of the local Coca-Cola bottling plant in Gulfport, Mississippi on August 12th, 1989. Chris Trompolis, Eric Zala, and Jason Lamb have just finished an eight-year recreation. The trio premiered their version of Steven Spielberg's Raiders of the Lost Ark. I hope to major in film and television. It's the hardest thing I've ever done so far. We've been following this story off and on for the past three years. Let's get you up to speed by turning back the hands of time. Action sequence, take one. It was shot out of sequence, so due to its long filming period, many actors randomly appear at different ages throughout the course of the film. They completed every scene in the film except for one that was too complicated and expensive for the kids to convincingly pull off. It's the scene from Raiders where Indiana Jones is in a fistfight with a big bald Nazi next to an airplane with rotating propellers. At the last moment when Indy is getting his ass kicked, The Nazi gets hit by the plane's propeller and is shredded into a million bloody pieces that splatter all over the side of the airplane. But it's a pretty good effort considering it's the only scene the kids couldn't match. After setting Mom's basement on fire, it was probably a good idea to nix the death by propeller scene. The boys went their separate ways going off to college and the film was largely forgotten until 2003 when a film producer got his hands on the copy of the remake. Here's Chris on the film getting discovered all those years later. I didn't even tell my wife I was an Indiana Jones fan. So she had no idea that I had even done this Raiders thing. And so when it got discovered in 2003 and like exploded, you know, and got us into Vanity Fair and we were all of a sudden touring around the United States and going to Germany and Australia and, you know, my wife was like, um, so what's this Raiders thing, you know? I mean, can you like let me see it? You know, I'm like, eh, it's like this thing that I did. And, you know, I still had that like, that reaction, you know, and she's like, this is cool. This is great. So this little remake of Raiders of the Lost Ark, born out of the sweltering summer heat of the Mississippi swamp country by a couple of kids with nothing better to do, suddenly had the attention of Hollywood. Each of us um, received a very kind letter from Mr. Spielberg thanking us for our very loving and detailed tribute. And uh, my wife actually, you know, photographed me at various stages of opening the letter and just sort of like gazing down on, you know, stationary Steven Spielberg and, you know, his signature and, you know, this, my boyhood hero who I spent my entire childhood emulating his, his work. Um, uh, wow, I can't get any better than this, but I was wrong. Um, you know, jump forward a year and we've been screening and written up in Vanity Fair and uh, we're in Los Angeles doing the Today Show and uh, the Late Late Show with Craig Kilborn and we get a call from our agent. We have an agent now. Um, Spielberg wants to meet you in his office tomorrow at noon. God, 
I was doing okay handling all this up to this point, but now I feel kind of sick. In the year 2014, Chris and Eric raised enough money to go back and film that scene that they couldn't quite pull off as 12-year-olds, thus completing the childhood project that started back in 1982. Be sure to check out the documentary about this charming little story online. Show it to your kids. It's called Raiders, the story of the greatest fan film ever made. I'm Jesse Edwards, and this is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history. And your stories, too. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. Every chance we get, we take a deep dive into books that matter with their authors. And today we're going to hear about an American original, Frederick Douglass. Timothy Sandifer has written a fantastic biography of this preeminent intellectual and activist who was born into slavery. First, let's get a sense of Douglas's childhood. He was born to an enslaved woman sometime in February of 1818 on a plantation in Maryland. He never knew his father, and he never saw his mother after the age of seven. He was separated from his mother and raised by his grandmother, which was a very common circumstance among slaves. But his mother would sometimes come and visit him, And she would have to do so, of course, after she was done with work. So this was during the night. And so his memories of her were very vague and fleeting. Even under the oppression of slavery, young Frederick Douglass was noticeably curious and aware. Douglass grew up on a plantation until he was about seven or so, and he was sent to live with some relatives of his owner in Baltimore, This was the home of Hugh and Sophia Ald. And Sophia Ald, his mistress, was a a young woman, and she was not accustomed to the ways of slavery, as he tells it. So as a young boy, he observed her reading the Bible. And being curious, he asked her if she would teach him to read the Bible also. And so, of course, she said yes, and she began teaching him. She was so proud of his progress that she bragged about it to her husband, and he flew into a rage. He became agitated and started shouting at her that that teaching Douglas to read would unfit him as a slave because it would make him get ideas. He would start reading books and newspapers, and pretty soon he would want to run away. And in his memoirs, Douglas says that this was the first decidedly anti-slavery speech he had been privileged to hear because he recognized it immediately as saying that to be able to read was a key to liberation, a key to freedom. Douglas seems to have hated slavery from the very instant that he realized that that's the condition he was in. Before he went to Baltimore, Douglas lived on the plantation in the countryside and was often 
witness to some of the cruelties of slavery. One of the most striking instances that he describes in his memoirs is witnessing his cousin Esther being beaten by his master Anthony. Captain Aaron Anthony was his name. And Anthony admired Esther. She was, as Douglas puts it, uh, cursed with beauty, which meant that Anthony lusted after her, and he forbade her from visiting her boyfriend, Ned Roberts. Well, of course, they secretly visited anyway, and when Anthony found out about it, he took Esther to a shed, tied her hands to a beam in the ceiling, stripped her naked to the waist, and beat her with a cowhide. Anthony savagely beat Esther, and Douglas was in the other room as a young boy witnessing this through cracks in the wall. And uh, he never forgot that incident. On another occasion, when another slave named Denby finally had had enough, he jumped up and started to run away. And Douglas says that the overseer pulled out his gun and told Denby to stop where he was and come back. And when Denby refused to move at the count of three, simply shot the man through the head. Denby's murderer was was never brought to justice. If anything, he was more respected in the slaveholding communities. So Douglas tells these stories in order to make clear that slavery corrupted whites as well as blacks. It ruined the best instincts in white people just as much as it tyrannized over black people. When Sophia tried to teach him to read, she was penalized for that. And when a man commits murder in front of a dozen witnesses, he gets celebrated for it. Indeed, as Douglas got older, he would experience these savage aspects of slavery firsthand. After his time in Baltimore, he was sent to a rural community called St. Michael's in Maryland. And he was living with a master whom he did not respect. And he apparently, as a teenager, he was wont to demonstrate his disrespect. And so his master decided to punish him, decided that he had had too much spirit, and sent him to live on a plantation run by a man named Edward Covey. And Covey was well regarded in the community for his ability to break the will of slaves who were too resistant. Covey spent about six months beating Douglas punishing him, starving him for offenses real or imagined. It wasn't just a matter of strict rules being strictly enforced. It was a matter of vague rules so that the slave could never know whether or not he was really obeying the rules and he was then liable to being beaten or attacked or punished, even for being conscientious. Douglas tells us that slaves were punished sometimes for being too hardworking because the idea was to destroy the sense of pride in slaves, to wreck the part in them that longed for freedom. And Douglas tells us that it worked. After six months of this treatment, his ability to think for himself and to dream of his own freedom was essentially destroyed. Finally, after one occasion when he was beaten particularly badly, he walked to St. Michael's to beg his master to intercede and protect him. And, of course, his master said no. So Douglas was forced to walk back to Covey's farm, knowing that he would be beaten when he returned. And at some point during that walk home, he found something within him that was unwilling to surrender. And when he was attacked by Covey upon his return, he stood up for himself and he turned and defended himself and fended off Covey's blows. And they fought for two hours there in the hot August sun and 
when it was finally over, Covey stumbled away saying, if you hadn't resisted, I wouldn't have beat you so badly. But he actually hadn't beaten Douglas. And Douglas, from that point on, clung to that memory as proof of the basic principle that if you stand up for yourself, that's the most essential quality. You can't be given freedom. You have to claim it for yourself. And he summed that up in a line from the poet Byron, who would be free must himself strike the blow. And we're listening to Timothy Sandifer on his book, Frederick Douglass, Self-Made Man. And it's so true. Slavery corrupted the whites as well as the blacks. I love the line, you can't be given freedom, you must claim it for yourself. When we come back more with Timothy Sandifer and the life of Frederick Douglass, this is Our American Story. Continue with our American stories and the story of Frederick Douglass, told to us by Timothy Sandifer, whose book is Frederick Douglass, Self-Made Man. Go to Amazon.com and buy it, or heck, go to a bookstore and get an actual book, whichever you prefer. And by the way, Sandifer is an adjunct scholar at Cato Institute, one of our great think tanks in this country. So we just heard how Douglass fought and won against the so-called slave breaker, Edward Covey. Let's pick up the story from there. After his year at Covey's farm, he returned to his master, who then rented him out to a man named William Freeland. And Douglas tells us that Freeland was actually a relatively good master. And he says, but this, of course, was not a a solution to the problem. He says, if you give a man a bad master, he will just do what is necessary to survive. But if you give a man a good master he pretty soon wants to be his own master. And that's what happened when he was living at William Freeland's plantation. He decided that he would not allow another year to pass without having tried to escape to freedom. And along with a half dozen other slaves, he came up with a plan to escape from the plantation, escape north in a canoe up the river to Delaware and then from there on foot. But unfortunately, one of the slaves betrayed the secret, and Douglas and his co-conspirators were arrested and dragged off to jail. The master came and, and took away the others, but Douglas was left in the jail for a week. And during that week, he tells us, the slave sellers came to shop at the jail, would check him out to consider whether to buy him. And finally, at the end of the week, his master Thomas Ald came to visit him and said to him that he was going to sell him to the south, sell him down to Louisiana or something, which among the slaves was generally considered the worst possible fate. There was no escaping from those plantations. But then for some reason that we don't know, Ald changed his mind and didn't sell 
Douglas south. Instead, he sent him back to Baltimore to live with Hugh and Sophia Auld again. By this time, Douglas was 17 or 18 years old, and he was already committed to escaping to freedom. And so being in Baltimore gave him a lot more chances to do that. The first thing Douglas did was he tried to get a job and save up his money to buy his freedom. And his master, Hugh Auld, was okay with that and uh, agreed to that. But uh, some weeks later, when Douglas failed to come home on time, Hugh flew into a rage and changed his mind and said, no, I won't allow you to get a job and save up your money for your freedom. And that was apparently the last straw for Douglas. He resolved that he would find some way of escaping at that point. So he obtained documents on the Underground Railroad, a, um, a passport that described a member of the U.S. Navy. And he says that the description on the passport did not really match him, but he was going to give it a try. So he got some clothing like a sailor. And having worked for some years by that time building ships in the shipyards of Baltimore, he knew the lingo. So he boarded a train in Baltimore that was headed north and bluffed his way past the security guards and managed to escape to New York City. And he was joined there by a woman named Anna Murray, whom he had courted in Baltimore, a free woman. And they were married in New York City. And some friends in the Underground Railroad recommended then that they move to New Bedford, Massachusetts, which was the center of the whaling trade at the time. And Douglas, with his experience building ships, could get a job there. So he arrived in New Bedford as a married and free man responsible for himself. And that was the moment, really, when his free life began. Indeed. And my goodness, what a story. And I, I, that one line just, well, it strikes you. Give a man a good master, and soon the slave will want to be his own master. Just how sick, how warped. Even as a free man, Frederick Douglass, well, he had plenty of challenges ahead of him. He says in his memoirs, I was freed from slavery, but I was freed from a room and board as well. So he went first to the wharves to work on ships, but after not a long time, the white workers refused to work with him and insisted that the overseer or the, the manager of the area disallow him from working on the ships. So Douglas ended up working a variety of odd jobs in a brass foundry, in a blacksmith's shop, and just getting whatever work he could. And he tells this story that when he was working in the blacksmith's shop, his job was to operate the bellows to keep the fire going. And he would nail up a copy of a newspaper on the wall next to him so that he could read while he was operating the bellows. Most likely that newspaper was William Lloyd Garrison's abolitionist The Liberator, which began publication in 1831 and was probably the most important of the abolitionist newspapers. Now, Garrison was a fascinating historical figure, a radical, an extremist, a Christian liberationist who believed not just in the immediate abolition of slavery, but in the total abolition, essentially, of all politics. He said that it was wrong to vote, it was wrong to run for office, because to do these things was to lend your moral credibility to a political system that perpetuated slavery. Garrison believed that the Constitution of the United States was an evil document because it protected slavery, and he would burn the Constitution at his July 4th speeches. And apparently he was quite a riveting speaker. Douglas went to hear him speak, and at this one convention, he got up to tell his own story of having lived in slavery. And he says that he doesn't remember a single word of what he 
uttered on that occasion, but that Garrison was so impressed that he immediately composed an extemporaneous oration on the spot about Douglas, and very soon after recruited Douglas to work with him in the anti-slavery movement. And this broad anti-slavery movement shared some goals, but different groups at different times, well, they had different ideas. Before 1831, there were a lot of people who thought slavery was evil and they wanted to see it ended, but they really didn't know how. And they often stumbled on the question of whether it was possible for the former slaves to even live in the United States alongside whites. Jefferson, for example, Thomas Jefferson despised slavery, but he wrote in his notes on Virginia that he didn't believe it was possible, really, for whites and blacks to live together. And so people like him, they came to argue in favor of colonization, that is, of sending the former slaves to live in Africa or Central America in colonies, which was, uh, in retrospect, really a shockingly inhumane thing. I mean, these people had been born in the United States. They'd never even visited Africa. They they had not come from Africa. Their great-grandparents had come from Africa. And it was totally impossible to accomplish this anyway. There were just too many slaves, as a practical matter, for this to ever work. But it became a respectable way for a white person to be opposed to slavery because everybody knew it wouldn't ever really happen. Then in 1831, William Lloyd Garrison came along and revolutionized anti-slavery politics by insisting on the complete and immediate freeing of the slaves without any compensation to the masters. And that is what is known as abolitionism. Douglas became an abolitionist in the 1830s when he joined Garrison's movement. And from that point to the rest of his life, he spent his time as a writer and speaker against slavery. And, of course, it's impossible to discuss abolitionism without discussing religion. Here's Sandifer on Douglas's complicated relationship with Christianity. Early on, when he was a slave, I believe Douglas was a very devout Christian. We know that he would teach Sunday school even after his master prohibited that, risking punishment to do that. He believed very strongly in teaching his fellow slaves to read the Bible. But he became very disillusioned with religion when he was living with Thomas Auld in St. Michael's before he went to Covey's house. And he became even more disillusioned with Covey because these were men who professed devout religion, particularly Covey. Covey was such a devout Christian that he refused to beat his slaves on Sundays and forced his slaves to sing hymns in the evening. And Douglas was was repulsed by this hypocrisy, but he was just as repulsed by the northern churches, which typically refused to take a stand on slavery and did not excommunicate slave owners. Douglas was really shocked when he came to Massachusetts, free Massachusetts, and found that the religious meetings were nevertheless racially segregated. The preachers would administer the Eucharist first to the whites and then to the blacks, and Douglas on one occasion stormed out of the church and refused to come back after this occurred. So Douglas was really shocked by the way that the churches in the United States accommodated or openly accepted slavery, and he never fully recovered from that. But of course, the churches played a very important role in the anti-slavery movement, particularly the Quaker church. Now, what's interesting about that is that the Quakers were a nonviolent group. They rejected the idea of, of war on slavery. And Douglas was firmly opposed to that. He, he could never accommodate himself, even early on, to the idea of nonviolence. 
He tells the story of his fight with Covey, for instance, with, with marked pride in his very first memoir, which was published in 1845, less than 10 years after his escape from slavery. And Douglas was quite overtly pro-violence later on in life. He said the way to make fewer slave catchers was to make a few dead slave catchers. So Douglas never got along with the anti-violence views of the Quakers. And he also insisted, as I mentioned, on the, the value of personal pride in a way that really offended the religious views of some of the Quaker abolitionists that he hung around with. And you're listening to Timothy Sandifer, his book, Frederick Douglass, Self-Made Man. This great story continues here on Our American Stories. And we continue here with Our American Stories, and we're back with more from Tim Sandifer on his biography of Frederick Douglass, The Self-Made Man, and Sandifer is an adjunct scholar at Cato Institute, one of this nation's finest think tanks. And my goodness, this isn't a think piece. This is a heck of a story. Go out and buy this book. Go to Amazon.com or heck, go to a bookstore and buy it. We've heard Sandifer mention multiple times Frederick Douglass's memoirs. Here he tells us more about these writings. Douglass's narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, an American slave, is today an American classic of autobiography. Uh, he himself, however, regarded it as a minor production. He was much prouder of the second and third editions of the book, which he titled My Bondage and My Freedom, and the last one was The Life and Times of Frederick Douglass, which both of those were much longer and much more in-depth than the first version. In the first version, Narrative of the Life, that was published in 1845, and it's really a pamphlet, but it's got all the drama and power, and what's really what sets it aside from the other memoirs that were written by escaped slaves, because there were quite a few, but what sets Douglas's aside is the fact that he discusses the philosophical aspects of slavery. He discusses the deeper sociological aspects of slavery. And that was something that a lot of the others didn't. A lot of the others would tell their personal stories. And the abolitionists wanted that. Garrison and the other white abolitionists said, tell us the facts and, and we'll deal with the philosophy. And Douglas was never willing to do that. He would talk about why it is that masters encouraged their slaves to drink alcohol. He says it was in order to make them sick of the idea of freedom. Douglas talks about why it is that masters encouraged their slaves to sing on the plantations. He says, you know, a lot of people at the time thought that slaves singing was proof that they were happy. And he says, no, this is, this is a way of fending off their grief instead. So the narrative goes into a lot of the philosophy. And of course, the other thing is how beautifully written it is. Douglas was so eloquent and such a great writer that it really stands on its own for that reason. And it was immensely effective at the time. It sold out very quickly, and Douglas had to publish two additional editions of it. Now, after it was published, it put him at real risk because it named names and it told his personal details in a way that made him vulnerable to being recaptured by slave catchers under the Fugitive Slave Laws. And so he was encouraged to go to Great Britain for a year to let things cool off. And it was while he was in Britain that his admirers collected money to buy his freedom so that he was able to return to the United States as a free man. And that's a hard thing to wrap your mind around, that this man had to flee to England because of fear of the Fugitive Slave Act and being captured and put right back in captivity and being able to buy his way to freedom. 
And that's what the book did. And by the way, his time spent overseas was not just for avoiding the slave catchers, it turns out. It helped Douglas to further develop his own thinking on the relationship between abolitionism and politics. Douglas met with a lot of important political leaders and intellectuals in Britain, and they started to change his mind about anti-slavery politics. I mentioned that William Lloyd Garrison was against the idea of voting or being involved in politics because he thought that that lent moral credence to a corrupt political system. And when he was in Britain, Douglas started to meet British politicians who disagreed with that. They said, look at all the good that we've accomplished by being involved in politics. Slavery had been abolished in the British colonies by an act of parliament. And then there had been other reform efforts that had been successful, like the abolition of the corn laws and other kinds of reforms that had been done politically. And it was during this time that Douglas started to reconsider his views as a Garrisonian anti-politics kind of abolitionist. He still believed that the Constitution of the United States was an evil document, and he gave speeches in Britain saying that, but he became less willing to endorse the sort of anti-politics views of Garrison, and it was upon his return to the United States that he eventually repudiated Garrison's views and repudiated Garrison's belief that the Constitution was an evil document. And soon back in the United States, Douglas would fully change his mind on our nation's Constitution. It was under the influence of some thinkers led by Jarrett Smith, a prominent New York anti-slavery thinker, Lysander Spooner, who is still a very popular uh, libertarian anarchist writer, and other thinkers, my own favorite, Joel Tiffany, who is a prominent New York lawyer who also invented the refrigerated railroad car. These writers were arguing that, no, no, it's not that the Constitution is a pro-slavery document that needs to be abolished. It's that the Constitution is a fundamentally anti-slavery document that has never been fully and faithfully enforced. The way the argument worked was this way. So the first, we have to have our rules of interpreting the Constitution. The first rule is you can only rely what's actually written on the pages of the Constitution. You can't rely on the subjective desires of the people who wrote the Constitution. So if the people who wrote the Constitution wanted it to protect slavery, that doesn't matter unless they actually said so on the writing of the Constitution. And when you look at the Constitution, the words slave or slavery do not appear anywhere in the document. Okay, our second rule of interpretation is you have to read the Constitution as pro-freedom whenever you possibly can, even if that is sort of a stretch. And that both of those rules were endorsed by the U.S. Supreme Court at the time. So when we look at the Constitution, the first words say, we the people of the United States. Who are the people of the United States? Well, it doesn't say we the white people. It doesn't say anything about color lines at all. It says we the people of the United States. That is, all of the people in the United States. The same people that's referred to in the Declaration of Independence, which, again, says nothing about color. It says all men are created equal. So these anti-slavery thinkers said, well, therefore, black people must be citizens of the United States. And to deprive them of liberty without due process of law, therefore, violates their rights under the U.S. Constitution. What's more, the Constitution 
refers to the privileges and immunities of citizens of the United States. That's in Article 4 of the Constitution. And it says no state can deprive a person of the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. Well, slavery law certainly does that. It deprives people of their freedom to travel from one state to another, to choose their own employment, to speak their opinions, and so forth. So these writers argued that the Constitution, if faithfully enforced, would necessitate the abolition of slavery. Now, people would always say, well, in response to that, they would say, well, the Constitution has provisions that protect slavery, four provisions to be specific. There's the three-fifths clause, the fugitive slave clause that requires states to return slaves that escape from slave states into free states, the provision that says you can't abolish the slave trade before 1808, and then a provision that prohibits any amendment to the Constitution that would fiddle with that 1808 deadline. Well, these anti-slavery thinkers like Spooner and, and Smith and eventually Douglas, they had explanations for those also. For example, the Fugitive Slave Clause does not actually say slave. That word doesn't appear in the Constitution. It says persons from whom labor is due. But labor isn't due from slaves. They're the victims of an injustice. They've been victimized by a crime. They, no labor is due from them. They haven't been convicted of anything by due process of law. Instead, people like apprentices or indentured servants, labor is due from them because they've signed contracts. Apprentices running away was a serious problem in the 19th century, so it makes sense to read that provision of the Constitution as referring to them and not to slaves. Also, the Three-Fifths Clause doesn't protect slavery at all. All it does is apportion congressional representation, and in fact, it would reward states that abolish slavery by giving them more congressmen. And the 1808 deadline, well, Constitution prohibited interference with the slave trade before 1808, but Congress abolished the slave trade on the day it became legal to do so. And in 1861, when the southern states seceded from the Union, Douglas saw this as proof that he had been right that the Constitution was an anti-slavery document because it was the defenders of slavery who had to leave the Union and leave the Constitution precisely because it gave the Lincoln administration power to restrict or perhaps even abolish slavery. And my goodness, what a wonderful exposition and hard to find these days in any school linking the abolition movement, our Constitution, our history, our story. And Douglass's story inevitably linked to this discussion. Well, when we come back more with Timothy Sandifer, his book, Frederick Douglass, Self-Made Man. And again, Sandifer is an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. More with his story of Frederick Douglass here on Our American Story. Turn with Timothy Sandifer and a deep dive on the life of Frederick Douglass. Throughout this period, as Douglass's own thoughts on abolitionism and the Constitution are evolving, he traveled the country giving speeches to encourage abolitionist activity. One of his stops was at Hillsdale College in Michigan, and proud sponsors of this show and all of our historical material is Hillsdale College. Let's take a listen. As part of Douglas's speech at Hillsdale College, he spoke about the fact that a lot of the pro-secessionist 
pro-Confederate Northerners were complaining loudly about the Lincoln administration limiting civil liberties and restricting freedom of press. And it's very interesting, I think, what he says here. He says, um, he says, one of the peculiarities of our time is that the parties who cry for free speech have changed places. The men who used to mob the abolitionists are now in favor of the largest liberty of free speech. Douglas would put himself on the record as saying that they had the right of the argument. If a man is so low as to spit on the grave of his mother, or so vile as to cheer for Jefferson Davis, let him do it, and do not lock him up for it. He believed with Jefferson that error might be left free, so long as truth was left free to combat it. But to tolerate error is dangerous. Had the North been as faithful to all parts of the Constitution as to one, had we secured freedom of speech as readily as we sought to protect pro-slavery duties, had we protected the anti-slavery lecturer as we hunted the fleeing slave, we should have prevented the disaster that has come upon us. And what's interesting is Douglas is saying words that apply equally to today's controversies about free speech on campus, that what's important is to allow the debate to go forward because that's the only hope we have for advancing truth in this world. And so true. And Douglas also used his oratory for other purposes, more practical purposes. Douglas was working as a recruitment agent, recruiting freedmen or free black northerners to join the army to fight in the Civil War. If you read Douglas's articles and speeches encouraging people to enlist, virtually never does he say, you should join the army to serve your country. He never says that. In fact, it would have been shocking to him to suggest such a thing because, of course, he didn't think the slaves owed anything to their country. If anything, it was the other way around. It was the country that owed the slaves the ability to serve in the military, to free themselves. Douglas instead, he says, you should join the military for yourself. Number one, because you need to get guns in your hands so that it's harder for the government to take them away later. And number two, because you need to learn how to use those guns because you're going to need to defend yourself later after the war. And number three, because you're going to need that sense of pride, that sense of accomplishment of knowing that you have fought for your freedom, you have earned it. That sense can never truly be taken away from a person, and it is the critical building block of political freedom. You can't have a free society among people who don't believe themselves that they are deserving of freedom. As Douglas became more famous, he crossed paths with Abraham Lincoln. Indeed, it happened several times, including at Lincoln's second inauguration. Douglas was in the audience. In fact, a photograph exists showing him in the audience listening to the second inaugural address. He then went on to the White House to meet the president, and some policemen there who didn't think that a black man should be in the White House tried to throw him out, and Lincoln interceded and loudly in, in, in front of the whole crowd said, here comes my friend Douglas, and shook his hand and asked him, what did you think of my speech? And Douglas responded, it was a sacred effort, Mr. President. Now, this story is often told in a way of showing the brotherhood between these two men. And there is a really a remarkable parallel in the lives of these two self-made men who started out in abject poverty and worked their way up to the highest levels of government. But it's also worth mentioning that Lincoln was by far a less 
famous orator than Douglas. Douglas, by that time, was a world-renowned speaker, one of the great orators in American popular culture at the time. And this was a time when public speaking was a high art form and, and a form of entertainment because, you know, there was no television or radio. So for Lincoln to ask Douglas what he thought of the speech, it was Lincoln asking a world-famous speaker, what did you think of my attempt at public speaking? And Douglas was condescending to applaud the president, not the other way around. Anyway, that was only weeks before Lincoln's assassination and after Lincoln's death, his widow sent Douglas Lincoln's walking stick as a memento, to which Douglas wrote a very appreciative letter saying he would keep it forever in memory of the good that Lincoln had done for black Americans. Even considering this mutual admiration between these two men, Douglas, well, he kept a realistic view of Abraham Lincoln. In the 1870s, the black citizens of Washington, D.C. paid to erect the very first monument put up to Lincoln, which still stands, the Freedman Memorial, not far from the Capitol building. And Douglas gave the dedicatory speech at that event. The speech is remarkable for how objective it is toward Lincoln. It would have been very easy for Douglas to give this sort of Lincoln was the greatest man who ever lived kind of speech, and he doesn't. Instead, the speech is alternately praising and cool toward Lincoln. And he refers to Lincoln as the white man's president. And he faults Lincoln for never seeing slavery really in terms of how it affected black people. Lincoln always thought of slavery, Douglas thought, in terms of how it affected white Americans primarily. And although he grew in office and although he was willing to take a bold stand when the time came and he was a fundamentally good man, Douglas never stopped criticizing Lincoln for, in his terms, doing wrong from expediency and right from necessity. After Lincoln's assassination and the initial successes of Reconstruction, followed by the political death of that program, Douglas sounded the alarm. He gave a speech called There Was a Right Side in the Late War that really focused on the danger of reconciliation among whites that did not include protections for blacks. He said he was shocked to see that people were beginning to forget already that the Civil War was a moral showdown over the evils of slavery. Instead, they were talking about it as if it was just an issue of states' rights, and they were even starting to put up monuments to Confederate generals and to forgive the Confederates. He says, where in the South are they putting up monuments to Union generals? Where are they forgiving the Union? You know, the, the, instead, this was turning into a sellout of the victory that had been so hard fought. By the end of Douglas's life, the protections for civil rights in the South that had been promised by the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments and the Civil Rights Acts were being abandoned. Lynching was on the rise. Shortly after Douglas's death, it reached a peak with a lynching in the South almost every other day, voting rights being eradicated, and so forth. So throughout the 1870s, Douglas was particularly focused on getting the right to vote for the freedmen and advocating for the 15th Amendment. He thought that it was essential that black Americans get the right to vote as a form of self-protection. Nowadays, we talk about the right to vote as sort of this important part of 
creating a proper democratic society. Douglas did not think of the right to vote that way. He thought of the right to vote as a way of protecting yourself against those who would take your property away, take your guns away, take your economic freedom away, and take away your civil rights, which in fact is what happened, of course, because when blacks were stripped of the right to vote in the 1890s, shortly after Douglas's death, what you saw was the virtual reinstatement of slavery in the South. Indeed, and this is history that's just not taught well enough. All sides, all dimensions, and the best person to tell it through, whose life story one should tell it through, is Douglas's, not Lincoln's. Frederick Douglass was an iconoclast, if ever there was one, impossible to put into a neat artificial box consisting of politics or race. So what are we to make of him in the context of American history? Douglas stands at the opposite point of view from contemporary writers who often argue that America is essentially and fundamentally a nation built on white supremacy. This argument is becoming increasingly prominent today that the American Constitution was written only for white people or that the Declaration of Independence, when it says all men are created equal, did not really mean all men. This is not an uncommon view. People as prominent as Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall have agreed with this view. Douglas rejects that. He says that, no, the Declaration refers to all men and it means all men, and the Constitution protects the rights of white and black Americans equally. And I would also add, Douglas was quick to emphasize the role that white White Americans played in the anti-slavery movement and in the fight against racial oppression in the South. Even when he came to disagree with them on some important things like Garrison, I mean, he, he split with Garrison over whether the Constitution was an evil document or not. But after Garrison's retirement, Douglas wrote a beautiful eulogy to him about the important role that he played in, in making America a freer place. So Douglas was not blinded by these racial categories. And you've been listening to Timothy Sandifer on his book, Frederick Douglass, Self-Made Man. Go out and buy this book and give one to a friend, too. It's a, a great prism through which to understand this great American story and our original sin, which is still with us today, the baggage of that original sin, slavery, and ultimately what set in as we get through segregation, and not just in the South, folks, in the North, in the West, This country was segregated right up until the mid-70s, all over the country. Frederick Douglass' life story here on Our American Stories, and pick up one other book while you're at it, Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, an American Slave, that memoir written in 1845, maybe one of the great pieces of American literature. And again, Timothy Sandifer is an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. His book, Frederick Douglass, Self-Made Man, here on Our American Stories. 